Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Short stories are the perfect way to address a range of issues in an immediate and succinct way. Sean O'Byrne has done just that in his collection entitled A Couple of Things Before the End. So, Sean, welcome to 3CR. Thanks very much for having me. Now, what sort of end did you have in mind? It's a bit ominous, that uh, sort of title. What? Yeah, well, I wouldn't be the only person... Uh, I mean, just about everybody is going to soon start to be thinking about what the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years are like. And if you begin to read, even in the mainstream press, you'll start to get warnings that if the sky gets full of more particles that make the Earth hotter and hotter, uh, parts of the middle part of the Earth are going to become more or less uninhabitable this century and serious water and food shortages will come along with that i mean this is nothing else but what Mm. anyone who gets anywhere near some science is starting to tell us um now then the question would come can a fiction serve that what can a fiction do um without saying the same thing over and over but what what to do with that was really interesting to me was what would the people i grew up with i love Um, And also people who weren't exactly like the people I grew up with. How are we all going to be with this? What is going to happen to to quite the people I really know Mm. once serious privation, serious shortages start to happen all around us? There's one story at the end, Bunker, which goes into that. We'll come to that one. But there are other sorts of ends in mind here. The end of a, a period in your life. Uh, The end of communication is another one that comes up. So let's delve into some of these stories, and hopefully it won't be all uh, that ominous, um, because there are some fascinating things here. The first uh, story is called Scout. Yeah. Were you ever a Boy Scout? (laughs) I have to go ahead and say that I was a Boy Scout. I was a Boy Scout in the 1970s. Uh, I was very... I was particularly bad at sport, which for an Australian boy is a special problem. But one thing they could find to do with me was put me in Cubs and Scouts. And that worked. That worked. I was um, especially bad at what in the 1970s was called footy clinic. I stood there disconsolate, a very small boy, seven or eight years old, in the middle of a big muddy oval. And all I wanted was, people might remember this, you got a big M at the end. But for me, it really was standing around in an hour on a on a paddock, not understanding really what to do with the football. I remember years ago Michael Lunig telling the story that when he was a boy out in the country, he was so sort of alienated and confused by football and what you were supposed to do. When the ball came down towards him, he picked it up, held it to his chest and ran through the goals. Naturally, as, as one would. <laughs> but... It's a rite of passage in some ways, you know, learning the knots, earning the badges. Yes. But at what point do you sort of, what, well, does it come to an end, if we want to talk about endings, yeah. that you transition, that yes. there's yes. a development yes. there? Well, what was, I suppose, what, one of the things that's got some pathos about being a scout, <laughs> I mean, there's certainly some comedy as well, but what, 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 was, what was maybe sad or poignant a bit about being a scout in the 70s was... 
you were participating in a system, and you didn't exactly think of it like this, but you were participating in a system that was actually dying all around you, which was the um, old British Australian loyalty or British Australian idea of what was valuable. So there we were in sort of 1977, 1978, 1979, in our uniform saluting the flag um, and trying to be sort of good junior soldier boys in a way, or at the very least the kind of good boy that you would have, that Baden-Powell, mm. I don't know if people remember Lord Baden-Powell, the founder of the scouting movement, but um, if you go back and look at scouting for boys, it's the idea of um, a kind of purposeful cleanliness in a little boy uh, that's also always turning into the effort to sort of locate and destroy aliens. But, um, and I don't mean, I don't mean from outer space, I mean the ones who live... But there's a militaristic element to Yeah, it. this is it. So it's, pa- it's playing soldier. Um, but it's also got an idea of self. There's a self idea of self control in it. There's a list of things mm. that a good boy does, that a scout does. A scout is prepared, but a scout is also sort of honest and attentive in some ways. And I don't mean to, you know, mock all of that. Hopefully, the thing about that story is it's not all just <laughs> pissing from a height on the scouting <laughs> movement. It's getting to something which was that there was something in that. I mean, I know we feel like this a lot now, but there's something in that old idea of self-control, which is such a deeply unfashionable idea now. The scouting movement held on to a part of it, but of course to us it just looks ridiculous that you would wear your little uniform and your little hat and salute a flag on a Tuesday night. It's not so much ridiculous as one eventually, which happens in the story, eventually grows out of it yes. and, and reevaluates as you grow older. Yeah. So it, it has its purpose and its place, but as you say, a lot of the traditions are dying as well and mm. you've got to reinvent. I mean, the notion of a boys' group alone now yeah. in today's society yeah. has yeah. changed. Another thing that's changed, the royals. <laughs> you've got a monarchist yes. newsletter yeah, there, is an inc- there is an incompetent monarchist <laughs> group pretty early in there. And that comes out of the scout story too, which is, It goes to the whole idea of the sheer strangeness of trying to make an England down the bottom of Asia, which we really did try and do. I went to London for the first time not that long ago, only about 10 years ago. And I had that thing that many, many Australians must have had, which is the shock of recognition that once you get through Cockfosters on that train and start to go into London, of course, it looks exactly like Hawthorne. It looks exactly like Malvern, down to the last brick. And you begin to understand in a way that you hadn't before that we that, that the effort was really just to make these places again. The idea of a Camberwell below Laos or below Papua, we really tried for that. And again, I think one of the things that's hopefully interesting about growing up in the 70s is I think the 70s was was a real transition time where that old idea that we could somehow keep together an England down here began to break up and wash away. And so, and then, I mean, then, and, and I think plenty of people listening to this would know this, but in a way, the bill for that wasn't paid until the 1990s. In the 1980s, we had that exuberant time where we thought, well, no, no, there's going to be enough money in this and we'll just be Australian. It's all right. We can let England go and it won't hurt us. By the 1990s, by the Howard years, you had the understanding that it was actually going to be something that we felt a lot more sour about and a lot more angry about and we're going to punish somebody else for. But we still had politicians bringing back... Knighthoods and such like, yeah, and reviving that's right. but that's what, the age of that, That's interesting, but that was what was interesting about the Abbott attempt in about the time of that story, about <laughs> the time of that royal story, where it's really much too late now. And even people that you wouldn't expect saw the thought the idea of Sir Prince Philip 
yeah. the first Australian knight. Oh, that's right. It would be Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. That the whole country in by 2015 couldn't take that. Mm. But just as Australia was reinventing itself or or imagining its identity, which is a growing sort of evolution, the monarchy is sort of caught in the same bind. I'm, yeah. You know, Harry and Meghan don't make it into the story necessarily, as uh, only slightly, but they're trying to establish their own identity in a new age. Yes. So yes. can you hold on no. to the monarchy? <laughs> no, no, this is it. Where I think, I mean, I think this is still true. This might go a little against what I just said, but I still think... It's, it's a strange schizophrenia. Uh, what you would think of as the old Australia still holds a lot, holds on a lot for monarchy and for an idea of England that still does persi- persist. And one of the places it does persist is in those people, in that royal family, in the Queen, and to some extent now, I mean, we tried Diana, but um, now much more in William and Kate. But the thing that... Um, the thing about that is is that it's just getting harder and harder for any family, any group of individuals to actually be able to carry off what you need to do to be a barely successful enough royalty in the face of the sheer amount of virulent attention that the entertainment system is going to want to put on you. It's, it's pretty much going to be impossible to be monarchy in the next 50 years. But also then, the monarchy speaks to a, a tradition that goes back centuries, which hasn't necessarily evolved and changed no, with no. the mores that no. go on today. Which, which is, is its appeal, which is the thing we desperately hope for, that you could point to any one group of things and say, you won't change, will you? You'll stay the same, you promise. Um, the problem is, is that, as you say, with... Um, with Harry and Megan, is that they couldn't take the deal they were offered because the deal starts to get so strange, which is, listen, you'll be a representative of what is good and in a sense is more self-controlled, this idea that we're after over and over again. But at the same time, will pretty much persecute and um, you will be at you all the time. You'll open your door in the morning and hundreds of us will be trying to watch you. And they... I can't understand, I don't get a sense of whether this is to their credit or not. They just refused. They were like, this is so awful. This is more or less like a kind of strange, it's privilege, but it's also a persecution. And we can leave. Watch us leave. But there are people that can't leave in terms of the person putting out this newsletter, Mm. (laughs) hanging on to uh, things that are, in fact, disappearing. Yes. So that's his tragedy in some ways. Yeah, and that points towards hopefully what people find to be a kind of turning point. When I was trying to make the book, I I thought of it as a kind of curve down, curve down dark, curve down worse, which is, as you said before, every every so-called developed society is going to have this problem where an amount of its privilege, an amount of its wealth is just going to be taken off it, I would think, in some way before the end of the 21st century and what we know from 20th century history is that if you take a reasonably privileged group and you take some of its privileged away it gets astonishingly like just um, it's, it's, it, it will produce an amount of violence that's almost hard to understand like hard to understand hard to understand that humans are capable of um, Germany in the 1930s was uh, de- you know industrialized developed you know s- s- in some way parliamentary place but its middle class started to started to find what what happens where the whole of its middle class turned into a working class and that was enough once a bourgeoisie finds that it's not going to be a bourgeoisie anymore well it will literally run amok and i think it's not too much to say that you can see it already happening that the middle classes 
in, say, for example, England or in parts of the United States and then in parts of Europe are going to undertake a very vicious defence of the privilege that they've had so far. And the way in which that might play out, come to be in Australia, is something that I hope a fiction can at least try and think about, try and imagine. And try and address or, or get people to think about it. Um, to get on to more prosaic issues, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. You've got one story here. Man's eighty-eight. Yeah, there you let's go. let's talk about yes. sex. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, this is take some happy well, relief. The 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 protagonist here. I mean, you've got uh, two year twelve students yes. uh, discovering their sexuality. Yes, but they are in fact um, in a Catholic school and here we go and in year 11 this couple who were a married couple came and talked to the whole year like the entire year assembly about how they never did it till they got married (laughs) and what's fascinating about this story is that uh, the two kids in question are discovering their sexuality in an innocent way Mm. um, and and the first fumblings and then all of a sudden you have this institutional imposition over the top which countermands and and is completely out of kilter with with what's natural yes and that was something but let's just say something very like the experience of uh me and my people when we were 17 18 uh, i went to a, a suburban private Catholic school, like sort of lower level not, Catholic not, school. Not a single sex boys school. No, no. And that was, ter- well, that, was the, that was the thing that saved us in a way. That was the best thing about mm. it. Thank God, please. We used to sometimes go and play footy against schools at more or less our level where, and there was, there was a kind of sadness in this too, where a lot of parents were working very hard out in the outer suburbs, not because, and the, the, to, to make that tiny, tiny difference between the local high school and the local college. And God bless, the parents were putting out thousands of bucks just so their kid could wear a pretty funny-looking blazer. But they were going to a private school, and that meant so much. And the promise that the private school gave to them was, well, we will get your kid at least through to the end of Year 12, and we'll maybe get your kid to a university. And that did come true for me. So I don't want to say everything against the school, but that story, Man's 88, uh, it came out of a bigger... Um, sense to do with what you were talking about before, which was I didn't want the book just to be this sort of grim parade of what's about to happen to us. And I pretty late in the piece thought, all right, come on, think, what ex- what have you ever had happen or what do you ever know to do with Australian life that was sort of had a sweetness in it? And I did think back to that time in high school where somebody really likes you and you don't think they're going to like you and they do like you. And I know plenty of movies make something out of this, but it did seem fair enough when considering what the rest of the book was after to go back and think, oh, come on, what's a good? What's a, what's a pretty much a good that nothing else can say isn't a good? Um, but then remembering what it was like in high school there were two things about remembering what it's like to be in love or find somebody likes you at 17. One is you go so far so soon and you pretty much hope right away that the thing you've got at 17 will really last the rest of your life. I I forgot about this, but I have um, young, uh, friends now who have children and their children are beginning to go out with someone for the first time. And it's still there that, that, that when you're 17, you do talk a little about what it's going to be like when you're married and you do start to think of what names you're going to call your kids. And I remember doing that at 17, thinking, gosh, what will it be like? I mean, we'll have to live in a house, but where will we live? That's how much you can make out of 
the first amount that you get. Um, and the other thing is, is yeah, that 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 suburb, official state, uh, official school Catholicism in the 1980s had nothing to offer you except a lumps of stuff that were left over pretty much from the 19th century or earlier, um, which was don't have sex, don't have any sex. I mean, we were. The, the, the lumps of that that came at us, particularly to do with abortion, was was pretty bad and wrong too. They had very, that system had very little to tell you. So there you were feeling, in a way, more happily sexual than you're ever going to feel again. And the schools only think the only thing the school had to offer to you back then was abstinence. And people did come to my school and give an awkward talk in front of hundreds of kids, saying we didn't do it till we got married. But it was so out of place with where kids are. The kids are having to negotiate these sorts of issues and ideas. They're growing up. They're they're learning. They're discovering, which is a completely natural process. Yes. And then to put in a, a sort of official bureaucratic yes. <laughs> yes. overlay, yes. You know, yes. It's, yes. it seems totally out of place, out of kilter, and failing to recognise what kids are actually going through. Yes. And I, I, I don't know enough about this, but I wonder now, I think... Maybe it would be interesting to someone who's in their 20s, early 20s now, because I don't think it's run like this. Maybe at some of the older private schools it still is, but just at least to know as recently as the late 1980s, um, a school would flat out tell you that you shouldn't have any sex relations until you were married. Don't think that that just happened in the 1920s or before. That was happening in 1988. I remember. <laughs> well, you're on 3CR. This is published or not, and I'm talking to Sean O'Brien. Haburn. Yeah. It, it's the spelling. It's yeah, I, know. I, know. Um, I know. I've been Shane O'Brien many times. <laughs> Shane O'Brien. Yeah. Sean O'Burn. <laughs> yeah. um, he's good, Shane. But uh, the Irish just don't know how to spell. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what the English said. <laughs> and, and his short story collection, A Couple of Things Before the End. And dare I say, it's time to make another announcement about being a subscriber. But there you have it. Um, I loved the story about, well, entitled Leader. Ah. And you take the mickey out of the political speak that goes on. Okay, well, we, we had a big night last night, a big, big night, a big night for me, for us, for the party, and there's a lot to do today, some important meetings, so I'll get this part over pretty quickly. I'll just make an opening statement, and then I'll look forward to your questions. I mean, the vacuousness yeah. of the language, the repetition, who was your inspiration? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question that I'm should be a little careful how I answer. So I did look at a lot of Australian political speech making and I looked at um, press press conferences, transcripts of press conferences from Australian politicians uh, over the last 20 years. Um, I looked at some of what was said by Trump in uh, 2016. Um, I also, let me say this carefully, there are Sydney radio so-called personalities and sometimes they'll get into trouble with the regulator. And so what was really valuable was transcripts of their programs will be published as part of the regulator's judgment for or against them. And as you watch the regulator, pretty much let them do whatever they want again. There are these extraordinary passages where you hear what famous over-rewarded over Sydney radio personality said at 7am. Um, and that tone, that particular tone in the leader story, which is 
uh, both an effort to be like everybody else, but also this sort of, Don Watson's shrewd on this in Australian public life, a kind of petulance. And this goes to what you were talking about before, which is what we were both talking about, which is what's going to happen to us? I mean, things have gone, except for First Nations people and anyone who's had to come here recently and do work for us. Um, so many, so much of Australia, so many Australian people have had a very special kind of good run. We were a white working class group that had no aristocracy above it. And so that particular kind of Australian, uh, almost like an innocence that came with its privilege, that sort of Australian happiness, that old idea of the lucky country, um, is maybe about to really start to come to an end. And I think what we've, what has happened, again, since the Howard years, is a sense of what the old white working-class Australia is going to do once it has to turn around and confront what's happening in the rest of the world and then what's going to happen to the, to the weather, to the physical world, exactly where it is. And we're just beginning to find out what's going to happen and I, it's not going to be... I but, wonder what sort of shape we're in. But behind that then is is the political leadership yes. to address these issues which we're sadly not getting but this um short story leader looks at the sort of approach politicians take and in some way the the this uh particular politician is part of a third party so yes. it's a changing yeah. political dynamic yeah. but what hasn't changed then is the approach to the journalists and the public because a journalist raises a question which is avoided but moreover yeah. then yeah. there's a belittlement amazing that that is amazing you amaze me tracy even for you that, that is quite an effort okay give me a second give me a moment the biggest single change in australian politics in maybe 50 years maybe ever happened last night okay a third party now has as many seats in the lower house the people's house as the liberals or labor the same old geriatric parties we've had shuffling along forever and last night bang something big something new i don't know if you've noticed any of that tracy maybe you were doing your hair yeah that's it so all of a sudden, apart from avoiding the issue, because the journalist has raised a serious question, mm. it goes from uh, avoiding that question to then starting to attack yeah. the yeah. person asking the question. And that would happen all over the world. And you saw Trump do that in 2016. And I, this, this kind of person, the, the demagogue that we're getting more and more of... Um, does that that's that's what's in a way so exciting about them you know not to be pretentious but you know all those years ago max weber talked about this what's the difference between charismatic leadership and other kind of leadership and what the charismatic leader will do he always so far he will break the rules the ordinary rules of what is cause and effect or or lies and truth and that's exactly their appeal like the thing that's so hard to understand sometimes is if trump lies if boris johnson lies why isn't there any sort of punishment but that's exactly the attraction at that point the sort of civil society is broken down so badly that people want to be told lies they're excited if they're told a lie you know some almost subterranean sense they're they're wanting someone to lie more to them and at that point you get into this very dangerous second system where the pop a big part of the population is starting to demand a certain kind of fantasy and a person will come forward and say yeah i'll tell you that fantasy all the time and we're now living in this so who's at amount. fault here politically well, is it the politician or the people well i think both that's what's interesting about it and very frightening um sometimes 
there's a way to talk about this where it's, oh, look what the politicians are doing. If only we had better leaders. But I always think it's something, this is going to sound, but it's worse than that. It's, it's in the human itself. You will get individuals who will come out and help humans be more like this. But I wonder, I mean, part of the, the most serious thing in the books, really, sooner or later, is the idea of something like, I just don't know how a human, a, a human psyche, a human personality manages to stop over-organizing for itself and be able to, I don't know, give up so much of what it would ordinarily find necessary or pleasurable in order to stop a bigger thing happening. And I, we're going to find well, out. We're, we're facing that Yeah, we're going to get a huge, so many fronts. in real time, test of this. Sometimes I think what a fiction says back to uh, organised politics is, could you please pay attention to whatever it is in the human psyche that's always not going to do that? That's the one warning sound that a fiction can can put out. But in a way, sometimes a politics is going to have to... Oh, sorry, sometimes. You would understand sooner or later a politics would have to ignore fiction because a politics is, look, I hear what you say about how distorted and, in a way, necessarily narcissistic any human being is, but we've got things to do, so I'm going to have to find a way to get that narcissism in the service of what we'll need to do. But these stories, in fact, expose some of these flaws and faults, whether which points out the role of fiction, but... Yeah whether then the reader can receive it and act upon it. I mean, there's another one here, Water Girl, Ty Tucky. Yeah. There's, uh, it's told in tweets. YouTube, YouTube uh, comments. Y- YouTube comments, my apologies, um, because Water Girl is a sort of celebrity, as is Ty Tucky, yes. their relationship. But there's so much trivial, banal... Um, commentary yes in the middle of it all there is this nub which goes to the heart of the problem but nobody sees it everybody is so concerned with making their own statement however vacuous or facile which doesn't actually address the concern that's there yeah yeah one of the one of the extra awful problems that we've got is that just at the point where we need to become more adult we're so rapidly becoming less adult in other words that part of the psyche that is always too greedy to have something right away be sure right away well at this point in corporate capitalism um the largest organ most profitable organizations on earth have found ways to make money off that um that tai tucky water girl story it came from a couple of places, but one place it came from was just looking um, at things like, say, for example, a Drake video on YouTube and noticing that there were 1.5 million comments underneath that YouTube video. You know, you see that little figure there. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. comments 25, sometimes it's 725. This was 1.3 million. And if you go through, the thing that was so, I don't know, shouldn't have been a surprise, but was a surprise, was the... The, unbel- the almost unbelievable repetition that that people from all over the world, no matter where they were, from Venezuela to Nottingham, were saying the same things, and that those things were just that 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 real that the froth at the top of the personality, the easiest stuff that you could drain off a self, just love it, love it, love it, bad, bad, bad. What's up? What's up? What's up? 
for 1.3 million times. And we are making a world of that. And the question would then come, the worst the the worst the reality problem is, anyone interested in sort of psychoanalysis would know this, the worse the reality problem gets, the more this uh, insistent, narrow fantasy but will continue. The, the vacuousness, there's no discourse no, left, no. and it's appalling. But that's one of the saving graces of both literature and radio, where we can <laughs> engage and indulge in that sort of conversation. But unfortunately, we also have to bring those conversations to an end <laughs> because ruminations is waiting outside. So the book, A Couple of Things Before the End, a collection of short stories, Sean... O'Byrne. <laughs> O'Brien. Thank you. Shane. Sean O'Byrne. Yeah. And you. it's from Black Ink Books. Thanks for coming in today, Sean. Oh, thanks for talking to me. <laughs>